0: Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright here with my co-host Carrie Plitt on a beautiful sunny June day. Hi, Carrie, how you doing?
1: Hi, Octavia, I'm doing great because it's a beautiful sunny June day. We're also recording this on the weekend, so I'm full of life.
0: Oh my god, so good! <laughs> how are you? I'm great. I'm I'm at the beginning of my book tour, so I'm I'm. Tired, but I'm riding high. It's been amazing to meet a load of readers and have some really phenomenal conversations about the book and just it's in the world. It was reviewed and they didn't pan it. Like it's I'm good. It's a little I'm, bit I'm,
1: more than a not pan. You're being very modest.
0: Well, oh, it was a good review and it was a massive fucking relief.
1: because <laughs> <laughs> I was nervous.
0: Um, so I'm good. I'm riding high. I'm gonna go see some friends later, and then I'm getting back on the tour bus, beep beep, for the next two weeks. Yeah. But anyway, enough about me. Before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. So if you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash Lit Friction, where you will also get access to an extra minisode each month. There are now 29 waiting for you there. And you can also suggest themes for us to talk about.
1: But now back to minisode 41. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. As mentioned, Octavia is currently busy on her book tour. So today we are bringing you a rerun of one of our earliest minisodes, our third one to be exact, from April 2019 in a world before COVID existed, for instance. My
0: God, what a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> This was also a really fun one. So we we jumped in talking about the idea of red flags in which we got into literary snobbery, books as cultural capital, whether it's ever okay to judge a person by their reading habits. And it was, yeah, it was fun.
1: It was really fun. So you'll hear our thoughts on red flags and also our cultural recommendations from April, 2019, (laughs) all of which I checked are still accessible to you in some form, though I don't wanna give away what they are. Please stay tuned.
0: Welcome to Minnesota 3, where Carrie and I rang on about books and have opinions about things, um, which yes. makes it sound really thrilling, doesn't it? But it,
1: <laughs> I think it is. Damn. Well, we've had good response from our listeners, but so we, right. we continue to do the Minisodes. Um, and as we've done on the other two Minisodes, today we are going to, for the next half an hour or so, first of all, answer a question about books, and then second of all, give you some Recommendations for other cultural things that have filled us with joy. And there will be the usual musical interludes. That sounds like a tongue twister. Yeah. Usual musical interludes chosen
0: by Eddie. Um. Yeah. And our topic this time is inspired by a question that was going around on Twitter this week. Writer Laura Relia tweeted the question, what books are automatic red flags for you with people? I'll start. I once called off a date when a dude told me his fave book was Lolita. This little tiny question got over 12,000 likes and 4.1,000 responses, which is, you know, a lot. That's a lot of people having a lot of opinions and thoughts about it. So it obviously really resonates. And... Yeah, I just think it's a really interesting demonstration of the way that books function as cultural capital and a shorthand for all sorts of things, um, including our identities and the ways that we situate ourselves in the kind of cultural conversation at any given time. Um, And I was really interested in how many of the responses talked about using particular titles or particular authors on their online dating profiles, basically as a way of filtering people. So there were a lot of women responding to say that any man who stated, that he was a massive fan of any of the classic lit bros like Kerouac, Bukowski, Foster Wallace, etc. on their profile um, was was an immediate red flag. But yeah, it also made me think of people who use the fact that they don't read as a signifier. Um, Victoria Beckham has proudly declared that she's never read a book, for example. So, you know, this interaction that we have with these these objects, books that are also obviously so much more than just objects is is fascinating to me. Um, And it also definitely says some uncomfortable things about our snobberies and our insecurities and our desires to project all sorts of things about ourselves um which you know every single one of those things is obviously just part and parcel of being a human being in the world and being fragile and complicated so basically that very long preamble Carrie brings into to the question is it ever okay to judge someone on these grounds what do you think no <laughs> <laughs> and that's it
1: <laughs> Minnesota three um, over. Uh, no so yeah no but i'm not gonna lie here i definitely judge people on the kinds of books they read i'm a snob i'm a total snob i have always been um <laughs> i i have gotten less snobby from working in publishing actually because i think you realize when you work in the industry how books that are packaged to be literary or the kind of things that people who like literary books like or difficult books or well-written books are done so for a very particular reason. And there are plenty of books that fall outside of that literary category that are just as good, not just on the level of writing, but maybe it's on the level of story. Maybe it's on the level of a, a beautifully created world. And so I certainly try not to judge people who love books that aren't quote unquote literary. That being said, um, I think I do. I think if somebody says that their favorite book is Shantaram, the sort of backpacker novel or you know for me it was The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Yes, yes, that is in the same category of yeah. books. I I have to say it it makes me, you know, question them a little bit
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's really hard isn't it because we're all snobs and snobbery is about insecurity and you know but yeah I I mean I want to support you in that statement because I am also a snob about these things and I wish I were less snobby
1: yeah and I think the thing is I do wish I was less snobby I think I used to be invested in being a snob and now I'm really not and fight against that instinct in myself partially because I know a lot of people, many of whom I'm very close to, that either like books that I don't think are that good or don't read at all. And that doesn't make them any less wonderful as people. And so I think when you really, really evaluate your snobbery, you get to the bottom of the fact that that is is the truth. Um, And you're cutting yourself off from people who are probably very wonderful people.
0: Yeah, totally. And also when you gain an understanding of the way that like educational privilege and access and all other kinds of things plays into this stuff, you know, like when you become awake to the fact that whatever it is that you might be pinning your identity on and that you might be very minutely judging and feeling snobby about is something that other people don't even consider. And when you realize that, you know, that doesn't make either of you less interesting or less rich in your experience of the world, then you let it go. I mean, I think it's something that you mature out of as well, don't you? I'm so much less judgmental in general than I used to be because I'm more comfortable in myself. I'm more comfortable in the world. I'm less ignorant about a thousand things. I'm still very ignorant about a thousand more things. You know, it's a work in progress, isn't it? Um, And like you, yeah, I'm consciously engaged in trying to be less snobby. And I notice when, when snobberies or prejudices come up, Uh, I try to interrogate them and figure out where they're coming from and actually what it is about me that's making that happen because it's always about me, you know? It's never really about the other person. Having said that, though, (laughs) the Twitter question being about red flags, I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think that's ever legit? Because it's a slightly different part to this question, I guess.
1: Yeah, so my instinct, again, was to say it's not legit because you don't know why somebody loves that especially writers you mentioned like Hemingway or um Updike or uh, like Chuck Palahniuk that those sort of very very masculine writers um who you who you might think okay this is this is a bit of a red flag in terms of how somebody is going to think about feminism and treat women and all of those things even then it's like okay are these people interested in this writing because it's good writing Or are they interested in this writing because it glorifies masculinity? And it's really hard to know. I mean, I think you could also argue that those two things are kind of inseparable from each other. But I think there were a lot of really smart responses on Twitter to the question that weren't just, oh, this book is my red flag. I liked this uh, response from Cecilia Marie. This was my partner when we first met, but I suggested a few books, which he read. Fast forward, he can talk your ear off about bias in the publishing industry, and his fave book is Trumpet by Jackie Kay. So don't judge a guy by his reading list. Judge him by how he reacts to yours.
0: Which is a very good point.
1: That is a very good point. And it gets back to what you're talking about, about evaluating our own biases and assumptions. Like maybe, maybe the test is really how other people do that. And right. how willing they are to be receptive to other ideas yeah. in, in these close relationships.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's really complicated, though, right? Because it also, it's so much to do with the way that we use books as totems about ourselves. And also, you know, as the self is in a constant process of change and evolution hopefully then the way that you relate to certain texts is going to change as well I mean you know it's a bit like that phenomenon of when a song comes on in the club and you're like I love this song and then you realize you don't you just know it (laughs) and I think sometimes that happens with books as well you know the way that we retain like the title of a book or we have an emotional reaction to it when we first read it but we don't reevaluate it we don't think about it necessarily in the years that pass and then you meet someone 20 years after you read Lolita or whatever who's like it's my favorite book and the way that you relate to it might be different now if you were to reread it but at the time it remained crystallized as this phenomenal text or whatever it might be you know it's I think it's not as straightforward as we might feel that it is
1: yeah and I think you're so right about that that books when we say something is our favorite book we are making the choice to use that book as a signifier and cultural signifiers already attached to that book are then transferred to us. So it's worth it's worth listening to what people say that they like about culture because that is in part part of them constructing their identity. Yeah, big time. And and, and so as you say like it's really hard to separate those things. I think when people talk about what their taste is, it is them sort of staking a claim to to who they are and who they want to be. And if that's really at odds with how we construct our identity, maybe it's important to pay attention to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's the thing. It's not so much about, um, about whether someone states a book as a claim on their identity, but it's about how they talk about it and how they relate to it and if they have any self-awareness in that whole thing Mm. and I think the other thing that's tricky about this is that two things can be true at once like when I was in my late teens early 20s I mean god I cringe when I think back to the cultural signifies that I was like sticking all over myself like stickers on a suitcase you know and when I was thinking about this this question you know I legitimately love Dostoevsky's writing always have uh he's a great writer guys don't know if you've heard of him (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I know that when I was a young woman and like desperately invested in proving my intellectual worth and really um feeling the need that as a female presenting person to have myself taken seriously uh by attaching myself to this like big masculine writer um you know i was using Dostoevsky or, like, the fact that my favourite writers at that age were all the Russians as this, like, very embarrassing to look back on. I mean, I try and look back with compassion, but, you know, the way I was relating to that signifier was complicated and it was totally about presenting myself in a particular light because I also desperately loved Ian Rankin and a whole pile of crime fiction and I never said that up first. But, you know, the flip side of the snobbery thing is that I've been, I mean, God, I've been on the receiving end of people's literary snobbery my whole life because, uh, you know, you meet someone who'll say that they love a book, and you'll say innocently like, "Oh, I haven't read it," and they'll be like, "What? You haven't read that?" You know, and you, you know, th- suddenly they make you feel a particular way. When Catherine um, Angel, actually, who we had on the show many years ago, who's a great writer, um, an academic, tweeted again last week, "There's no wrong time." I'm going to paraphrase this; I might get a bit wrong, but basically. You can't have missed the boat in reading a book. There's no wrong time to read a book. Um, You can read it whenever you like. You know, don't mistake the publishing industry's cycle as a reading life. And I think it's such a good point. Um, So when anyone's being snobby with you about a book... And I mean, you know, I'm internalizing this advice also. It's it's sometimes just a question of you haven't had access to it. You didn't know about it. You haven't heard of the mm. writer. You haven't had the chance to think about it yet. Um, but my God, yeah. I mean, like, I still love crime fiction. I think it's great. I love quite a lot of genre fiction. And, you know, people make
1: you feel bad for that. And they have no right to. Yeah. Okay. But do you have any red flags?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Eggers. <laughs> um, I guess... Uh, I mean, Jordan Peterson, which actually you mentioned when yeah. we were thinking about this. Uh, any, anyone who said in the first like moment of meeting them or on a dating profile, let's say that Jordan Peterson was their go-to guy, I would not entertain meeting them because that guy is poison. And, uh, you know, I don't care. I don't care. I understand that some people think that there are nuanced things to say about his writing. I disagree. And that is a hill I'm willing to die on. And I guess... Well, I was thinking about this. I think less a particular writer and more, you know, maybe being dismissive of an entire genre or an entire thing. So like, I mean, I've definitely met men who are proud of the fact that they don't read work by women. That would be a big red flag. Mm -hmm. Um, Although interestingly, flipping it the other way, women who don't read work by men would be less of a red flag for me, even though I think it's a shame. And I think it's, I think it's silly to discriminate entirely about one gender obviously we're looking at a bias that has existed for centuries in the publishing industry and there's something about redressing the balance um so you know if someone said i never read writers of color that would be a massive red flag if someone said i never read the writing of white people that would not be Mm -hmm. a red flag do you see what i mean it's Mm -hmm. kind of complex Mm -hmm. but the other thing it made me think of was that I, i went on a date with someone once who very proudly declared to me that he never read the work of living authors and i just thought what an absurd way to position yourself. <laughs> like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand that instinct, but that's pure intellectual snobbery. Yeah. That's all about like a work of art proving the test of time. Yes. And I mean, what a way to lock yourself into really old fashioned perspectives and to ensure that you are mainly reading the work of white
1: guys, you know? What? Yeah, that's absurd. Well, listen, it didn't I think, that, <laughs> I think that's a nice way to think about it. Um, and I hadn't thought about it that way, but I th- I think those are all very very clearly red flags. I was thinking about this. I as I was reading the Twitter responses to this question, which was, you know, people really thought about it, and I was I lo- I loved reading the dialogue. Actually, yeah, it was super
0: interesting, wasn't
1: um, it? And a lot of people said, "Anne Rand." If there's a conservative novelist, Anne Rand is the. The er conservative novelist writing about individualism and and like freeing yourself from the constraints of society, all of those things, and it just brought home to me that political identity in our world today, it's it's become more important than almost any other identity, and I think that's I I see that to be true of me. I see that to be true of my friends. There are all these statistics about how you know in America. Democrats and Republicans used to marry each other all the time, were becoming increasingly divided from each other and increasingly sort of unable and unwilling to engage with those ideas. That's not to say that Jordan Peterson is like the savior of the right or I hope does not represent the right in that way. But I think when I was thinking about my red flags, they they were mainly if somebody was politically distanced enough from me in their thinking... I found it untenable to believe that I could have especially a long-term lasting romantic relationship with them. And I think that's really interesting. And I don't know if it's right or not. But Jordan Peterson, people like that, I think... I think I probably would say no.
0: Right, red flag. Whereas for me, you know, Bukowski, not so much. I really like Bukowski's work. I get the way that he's wielded as a cultural signifier is very problematic. And I'm not saying that everything he wrote was totally jammy and fine, but I respect him as a as a writer. And I, you know, I have always enjoyed certain things that he's written. Um, I think it's also a question of emotional labour, isn't it? I mean... Like the emotional labor required to meet somebody across those divides can be epic. And if both parties are willing to meet in the middle, it's manageable. But if you end up having to, to go over the other side, it's very, very tiring. And is it something that you can build into your daily experience? Mm. Yes or no, you know, it's up to you. But um, I mean, I, when I was on dating sites, which was a long time ago now, I I put that I was a feminist academic. That was my way of filtering Mm. (laughs) and lord knows i got some intense responses to that you know because it is something that prods at people and maybe that is the equivalent of a guy who's a right winger saying that he loves jordan peterson maybe that's his filter to push away women like me you know like yeah uh, and maybe that's okay i don't know i find it i find it hard to say that because i find it
1: sad i find it sad and i don't really know what there is to do about it but no yeah yeah On that cheery note.
0: (laughs) Um, All right. Well, we'll be back in a couple of minutes with our our cultural recommendations. So stay tuned. Hello, and welcome back to Literary Friction, Minnesota 3. Here um, we are, me and my lovely co-host, Carrie Plitt, back to give you some recommendations of things that are not reading that we've been into lately. So, Carrie, what has brought you joy this month?
1: Yes, I don't know if this brought me joy, but I would recommend it. Is that already breaking the code?
0: No. Okay. No, no, there's no code. This is a free and easy, flexible economy of... Uh, okay,
1: great. ...enjoyment. Yeah. But... Um, I really enjoyed the film that just won the Oscar for Best Documentary, which is called Free Solo. Oh, my God. Re- I really want to see it. No, I haven't. Yeah, Tell me everything. It's it's great. So it was made by a couple, Elizabeth Chai Vusser haley and Jimmy Chin, who is actually a climber himself. So he really understands this world. And you can see that. And actually, one of the things I love about this documentary is partially about how you make a documentary about someone scaling a wall, um, and you sort of see the behind the scenes of how they set up cameras and what, how they mm-hmm. capture it, and everything like that. But anyway, it documents the attempt of the climber Alex Honnold to climb up El Capitan in Yosemite, which is acknowledged as sort of the hardest wall to climb in the world, but doing it without ropes, which is called soloing. That's so Um,
0: insane. It's insane. It's an
1: insane (laughs) thing to do. And I think what this movie is asking is why would anyone ever do this? Why would anyone ever bring themselves this close to death? Take this risk, Mm. um, knowing that it is a risk. And does it answer that question? Well, I don't know if it answers the question, but I think that it is... A documentary that lays out before you this man, and asks you to decide whether you think what he's doing is worth doing. Um, which I really liked about it. It didn't, you know, it didn't hit you over the head with these questions. It didn't. It wasn't just a movie about, wow, like, the, you know how there can be those bro sports movies about like, oh, dude, that's amazing. Like, you scaled that wall. Amazing. And I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is, I just, I love your bro persona really very much, um, is is why somebody does this. And I came away feeling that I better understood his personality. And basically, it's that he is a very particular kind of person who is is fully focused on climbing Mm. Um, and really fully focused on, and it seems to be the only thing that makes him feel fully alive, as far as I can tell. That's fascinating. Which is fascinating. Um,
0: It makes me think of that movie Man on Wire. Did you ever see that? yeah. Yeah, I wonder if there's like parallels. I mean, it seems like there
1: must be. I think, yeah, there definitely are. And also the cinematography is just amazing. I mean, it's set in Yosemite. Oh my God, Um, I'm like bursting at the seams with the
0: desire to go there. I've never been.
1: Oh God, it's... It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I just it kept me on the edge of my seat for the full 90 minutes or whatever. I I just think it's a really great documentary. I would really recommend anyone watching it who's interested in these things. And I mean, we know that he actually makes it so that helps um, <laughs> with the stress. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think I would have wanted to go in not knowing whether he died, mm, you know, interesting. but also the film. Sorry, I'm I'm going on too long but the film really grapples with the fact that they are making a movie that might end in them filming their own friend's death yeah that's that's a wild thought isn't it Yeah. yeah so so yeah watch it if you can i saw it in the cinema i think it might still be playing in theaters around the uk and it's great in in widescreen i really want to see it
0: well, I went to see the Jenny Holzer artist room at Tay Modern. <gasps> yes, and I'm desperate to see oh that. Oh my God, you have to go. She's, I mean, she's the fucking bee's knees as far as I'm concerned. I've loved her work for a really long time. And it's always super exciting when I get to see it in reality. Because obviously her work is so reproducible online. You see it constantly on Instagram and on the internet and in photographs. Um but when you get the chance to actually be in its presence, it's, it's kind of electrifying. So for anyone who, who's not familiar with her work, she's an American artist. She works with text. So I guess this is still kind of reading, <laughs> but it's not. It is isn't. it isn't. I will allow it. Thank you. You're so benevolent. <laughs> um, she, yeah, she works with slogans and statements and in loads of different forms. So sometimes they're projected in neon scrolls. Sometimes they're on posters, on plaques, on wallpaper carved into benches, on billboards, signs, textiles. I mean, literally anywhere that you can put writing, basically, um, including on the front of cinemas and theatres. For example, some of her most famous slogans are abuse of power comes as no surprise, which is one of my personal favourites. Men don't protect you anymore, which was something she actually printed on condoms. Um, and there are some of them in the exhibition, which is quite a you know clever little funny thing. Um, and actually, there's a really famous picture of Kurt Cobain standing in front of a cinema with this one with Men Don't Protect You Anymore on it. Another one I love, a lot of professionals are crackpots. Romantic love was invented to manipulate women. (laughs) Protect me from what I want. Spit all over someone with a mouthful of milk if you want to find out about their personality Mm. fast. (laughs) I've never tried that. I've come close. I've never tried it. Anyway, her whole thing is that you never know which ones she means as completely serious and which ones she has her tongue very firmly in her cheek. And that's the point. Um, And you'll sometimes find them jumbled up together. uh, And it's up to you to figure out whether they're being teasing or inflammatory or contradictory. They're always probing. She's always interested in the way that particularly under capitalism, words actually dominate our surroundings. Um, And she loves to take art outside of the gallery space. So she's interested in the democracy of experience as well um, and massively in humour and in play and the way that we can respond to these things and and use them in our own kind of personal games, I guess. Um, she said she wants her work to transform spaces, to disorient and transfix people, to offer up beauty and to be funny and never lie. Which is classic Jenny Holzer because, you know, some of these are profound contradictions of other things. There's actually a great Twitter thing bot called Holzertron, where if you tweet anything with the words jenny holzer in it it will respond to you in all caps with a holzerism oh, love it it's the best thing ever basically if i'm having a bad day i just get the holzer <laughs> bot to shout at me on the internet and i feel better um so yeah go i think it's i'm not entirely sure but i think this is part of the permanent collection so i think it's going to be there for a long time um it's yeah it will enrich your day big time. Um, and then the other thing is like pretty much everyone seems to be who I know uh, have been really enjoying series to a fleabag, which I find very fucking
1: funny. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, it's great. There's a sexy priest. It I recommend I it. Watch it. Yeah. Um, it's really fun. No, I'm saving it up. I kind of want to wait until it's all out and then binge it. Yeah. I think that's a wise decision. I'm itching for the next, <laughs>
0: the next one already.
1: Also, do you know, these mini-asserts have really made me realize how often you, go and see art and I'm, I think that's really cool. Oh, and it's inspired me.
0: Yay. <laughs> I was actually thinking the same about you in the movies. You're very good
1: at seeing what's out. At the time it's out, I, I lo- suck at it. I love going to the movies, and I've rediscovered it. I think it's because I live in Oxford now and have less friends. But also, <laughs> but also, um, there's this amazing cinema in Oxford called the Ultimate Picture Palace, which I think is actually a listed building. It's one of it has the ticket booth outside. Oh wow! And then you just walk in, and it's the cinema. Oh wow! Um, and they play things a little bit later than what's out in theaters, but it's so great to go there. Um, and if you're ever in Oxford, I'd recommend yeah seeing something there I it's love an old fantastic. movie theater there was yeah. a great
0: one in Westgate on scene when I was living down in Margate that's old old school and also incredibly cheap which is brilliant but yeah I I, I want to be better so let's we maybe we yeah, can learn from each other yes <laughs> let's. oh my god we're disgusting <laughs> <laughs> okay well I want to see Free Solo you want to see Jenny Holzer we will get on that
1: we convene next time
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's all the time we have for today big
1: thanks to Paula at NCS and to Eddie Knight for editing and music Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram you can also get in touch with us on email litfriction at gmail.com and if you like what we do please subscribe
0: rate, review, share um, it really helps give us a boost and reach new listeners we'll be back in two weeks with a full hour-long show featuring another author interview until then I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie (laughs) Plitt. and this is Literary Friction